This is a story about finding out you're beautiful. Is depression funny? Depression is hilarious. When life is void of meaning and joy, everything is hilarious. You're like, I can't believe that I uh, am getting dressed today. <laughs> like, why would I do that when my naked body will be soon returning to the soil anyway? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. Our guest on this episode is someone who tried a lot of things to cure her depression. Isolating herself, drinking heavily, so very many pills. Didn't work. And then she put on a wig. My name is Miss Cracker. I am a drag queen from New York City. Um, I'm 35 uh, pounds heavier than I was last year. Ms. Cracker is many things, a drag queen, one of the contestants and breakout stars of season 10 of the TV show RuPaul's Drag Race. She's an entertainer, a YouTuber, and she's not at all just a character who's being played by a Jewish guy from Seattle named Max Heller. No, she's the part of Max Heller that feels best. Here's Ms. Cracker on RuPaul's Drag Race. My name is Cracker comes from my favorite snack, Brie on a cracker. That was my original name, but it was too much. So now it's just cracker. Miss Cracker is thin, she's white, and she's very salty. If that doesn't make her a cracker, I don't know what will. Someone described my style as Jewish Barbie on bath salts. I think that sums it up. Cracker almost never goes out in public without a full drag outfit. Makeup, wigs, the whole ensemble. That's what she wore to the Marketplace Studios in New York, where I interviewed her from St. Paul. Well, I'm going I'm going to the Miss Maisel exhibit after this, so I'm wearing pretty much exactly the outfit that she wore to announce the new season. By coincidence, I got this dress and then she wore it to announce the new season. So <laughs> we're going to go to the exhibit. I have like a little pillbox hat. Um, I have like this uh, uh, post-war, um, far-from-heaven type dress on with like uh, some tulle underneath and... Um, just like the most Upper West Side Jewish uh, hairstyle on that I could possibly have come up with. And I'm just seeing my reflection in the glass of the recording studio, and all I can see is this halo of brown hair and a schnoz. And I'm like, we've done it. <laughs> you know, I have accomplished the look. It's funny because that's what David Brancaccio wears to work every single day for, <laughs> for Marketplace Morning Report. Cracker grew up in Kenmore, Washington, a suburb of Seattle, with her mom, dad, and sister. I come from a very creative uh, family, and making stuff was sort of at the center of everything we did. And if I think about it now, it's probably because, um, like, uh, my parents are very haunted people. Um, what do you mean haunted? They, did, they didn't get on with one another very well. Um, and we had this place in Kenmore... Um, that had uh, a couple acres of property, and my parents lived on opposite sides of it. My dad lived um, on the in the house, and my mother lived in her artist studio, uh, which was down a long um, and winding like cobblestone path. And so, you know, when you live in that kind of environment, obviously, there's a lot of feelings of just uh, being lost, yeah. you know, and 
just that that emptiness we filled with with making stuff. Did they stay married? They did. They stayed married for uh, 27 years, and then finally, um, when my sister and I were both um, out of the house, my sister in college, um, they decided to make a better living environment for the children that weren't there anymore and <laughs> get divorced. <laughs> It was really, it was really a, a, a wonderful thing, though. My sister and I were very excited for both of our parents, and uh, they both immediately started thriving um, at that moment. Which is why, um, when one time my boss invited me to some of her divorce proceedings, and I was like, you know, this is really exciting because a, a wedding you celebrate something that may soon dissolve, but a divorce. <laughs> celebrate something that may last you forever and I think that's such a wonderful thing to be a part of <laughs> well um, so, and then I mean since we are the show we are like how was your mental health during during your childhood in my mind I was a really happy uh, child I had a lot of energy um, and I had anxiety um, I would have really I think if I'd like to find myself by that time like I had really bad panic attacks, and uh, my doctor, who was a quack, side note, sidebar, um, my sister uh, struggled with um, acne on her chest during her teens, and he looked at it and was like, well, tell people you had open heart surgery. (laughs) That was his one and only solution for that, and everything else was like that, too. Um, So I was... having really bad panic attacks as a kid. And he was just like, well, sometimes things hurt. Um, But they were feeling like heart attacks. I would just, my chest would crumple and I would have to double over and kneel down. How old were you during that? I was eight, nine, ten. Oh my God. Um, And they just were crippling and they were so painful that I couldn't even breathe in. Um, And now looking back, I realized they were panic attacks, not my quote, esophagus getting stuck on my ribs, as my doctor said, which I don't even know what that would look like physically or mean. Um, it doesn't seem like it's a thing. It's not a thing. But I remember I remember being a, like eight years old and hearing that and being like, I am eight, but I know <laughs> that's not what's happening. So that's part one, the panic attacks. And then the thing that makes me me, learning that the panic attacks... Um, would get me attention when I needed it. Um, so I had two kinds of panic, panic attacks, the panic attacks that were really real and crippling, and then the ones that I used to get out of things. Okay. Um, when did that I start? Because I recognized when I hit the floor. That was when I was like 11 years old. I realized when I, the, when I hit the floor, um, I no longer had to do things anymore. I didn't have to socialize or participate in stuff. So I started um, having you know these little uh, fainting spells you know, at my convenience. <laughs> that's me. That's me still today. Like, just in a different way. But that's the basis of my personality. Real problems, and then the fake ones I make to get out of the real ones. Yeah, same person, maybe hitting the floor less, maybe with mm-hmm. more wigs than Right, back then. yeah. Well, if you wanted attention, why didn't you want to socialize? Why didn't you want to participate where people could be could be watching you? I guess I wanted I wanted people I've I've always wanted people to know that something was wrong. Um cuz I felt like something was wrong and nobody was seeing it. And um it can come off as selfish to, you know, have the fake panic attacks, 
But when you're a kid and you don't have the words for how you feel, sometimes you need people to, you know, I would have panic attacks when I was alone, then I'd be fine in public. And there was sort of no way for anyone to see that I was suffering, you know? So if I had a panic attack in uh, public on purpose, then maybe there was a chance that someone would notice that I was having a really hard time. Cracker developed a lot of habits as a kid that have been a problem later in life. I uh, isolate in order to soothe myself um, for how I feel. And then the isolation makes me feel worse. And then it feeds back around. But my mother struggled uh, outrageously uh, with depression. Um, When she was starting when she was in high school, she would lick her lips before uh, school started and close them. And her goal was to... uh, keep them closed all day so that when she left school, it would be uh, a task to take them apart again. Wow. Why? Like, what was the goal of that? Just to not engage. And that continued when she had, when she had you like growing up, did you say, Oh, this, my mother is depressed. This is a thing she has. Not at all. I thought my mom was a really, uh, happy and, um, you know, excited person and I definitely am that way, too, around people. Now, looking back, um, I can see that she was having a really hard time with the basics, um, which is sort of what I have, too. Um, she raised us beautifully. She gave us homeschooling in addition to our public schooling. She had us creating art projects all the time. She always had us out with family and um, gave us a rich and wonderful life. And, but now that I look back, I can see uh, times when I, when she was having a hard time and I w- w- did not notice, you know, um, when it's just a day would end like at, you know, the bottom of the stairs with uh, her head in her hands. And I was like, what's wrong with mom? You know, like well, today was great. And then just realizing now that it was a tremendous effort to just, do the stuff yeah. of life. You just know? to make it that far. Yeah. So then you were in this situation. I think this is a familiar one to people who've dealt with depression. Is like um, you had this defense mechanism of people don't understand me. It's it's us against the world, you know, but we got each other and everything's going to be okay. It's like a bunker mentality that you developed, yeah. it sounds like. I mean, like now that you say that, I still, that's still my thing. Um, well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, does is that still going? Yeah, uh, kind of like uh, my family and I. When I go home, I see my family, and we sort of bunk, get in the bunker. Uh-huh. And in in my day to day life, like I work with uh, Caitlin, who's my like co pilot, and sort of manages my my brand, and we decide together where this is all going. Like, we definitely have a bunker where we're like. We trust each other. I don't know about the other people at all. You know, um, we, we just just don't trust what anyone else says. Yeah. Well, I mean, so often those things start as 
as really valuable, legit defense mechanisms. And then once the threat is passed, you just don't know what else to do because it's just what, what you're, what you get used to. Like, you know, if you, yeah. if, if you're a person who catastrophizes and says, oh, well going into the situation, the worst possible thing is going to happen. And you start daydreaming about the worst possible thing. You know, at, at some point you were probably in a situation where you needed for safety reasons needed to be ready for that. And, yeah. and those things just don't shake because the, the trenches in the, in the brain <laughs> kind of have been dug at that point. It's hard to shift between good times and bad times. And um, for, for my family, when uh, I was a kid, like we had two different kinds of uh, ups and downs going on at the same time. We had um, money, which sometimes we had none. And we just just trying to make food happen, trying to make um, payments on the house happen, trying to make, like, scraping, and then a lot of money, and then back. And then emotionally, like, all of our diverse mental health problems that we had in that house under one roof, people having a good week and a bad week and ups and downs of that. And I think uh, you, you learn, I think especially when you have uh, struggle with depression, you learn on your uptick to be like, remember, this is usually brief. Um, and you learn to ha- be always on your guard and to always be on the defensive and catastrophizing because in your experience, um, shit always goes left. And, uh, you know, I have my worst panic attacks when something goes well. I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be such a huge fall from here to where I always inevitably end up and I get afraid. Ms. Cracker, or Max at the time, grew up around a lot of depression and had anxiety issues, but I didn't know that I was struggling with depression until I went uh, to college. And then I completely checked out of everything. <laughs> where, did, where did you go to college? I went to college at a, one of the best colleges uh, to completely check out at um, <laughs> in America. Well, you'll know about it because you're from Seattle. I went to Evergreen. I was about to say Evergreen. <laughs> you can literally die. <laughs> Without a guidance counselor checking in on you. Because everyone is so close to dead anyway. Um, They're from California. The Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. You design your own major. They have narrative evaluations instead of grades. One might call it a hippie school. It's a great place if you have tremendous personal discipline. If not, it can be a bad trip. There's no safety net, you know. And... uh, so uh, me and my, now my friend Foster, we're still friends 20 years later. Um, we just sort of checked out, you know, no food, no classes, no friends, uh, just stayed in bed. And an adventure would be like I went over to uh, her dorm and then, you know, stayed there for days and days and days and days and just piles of garbage watching an avocado seed sprout in a half full uh, ice cream container and... um just just that was that was when i realized you know 
I think this is actually a, a, a whole problem. This is an actual life-threatening disease. I started struggling with uh, suicidal thoughts, and I was like, this is an emergency. I need to take care of this um, in about seven years, which is when I finally started going to therapy. Yeah, it took me another seven years. I was like, I could die at any minute. In about seven years, I will start looking for a therapist. Because you're too depressed to go look for a therapist? Oh, that's what people are always like. You need to you need to look into getting health insurance and get a therapist. I'm like, that's great. Um, I'm peeing in bottles in my room so I don't have to go all the way to the bathroom. I will get right on applying for health insurance that covers mental health care. Then... I will meet someone I've never met before in my entire life, which you know is my favorite thing, and talk to them about things that really upset me um, in a building that is inconveniently far away from this bed. Thank you for that advice. I hadn't thought of getting therapy before. Thank you very much. It's been very helpful. <laughs> oh, and have a banana for the potassium too? Great. It's fixed. I'm so glad you dropped by my mental illness to just... <laughs> Do a drive-by shooting of great advice. Having Ms. Cracker on our show was a great idea, but it was originally her idea. She listens to the show, and she reached out to us in part because there was an idea she really wanted to get across. That it's a struggle to stay with treatment, to do the work of making and keeping appointments. You have to fight so hard every step of the way in order to make therapy happen. Um, unless you have the money to pay out of pocket uh, every week and you have the means to travel and the like mental wellness to, to get there, it is very easy to say, hello, my name is so-and-so, love to do the therapy, and then never see that therapist or that office again in your life. And that's like, honestly, that's where I am now. Um, I have a therapist. I have a psychiatrist. I should probably answer their calls. Um, and the reason I say that is because I, I, I listen to your podcast a lot. And uh, a lot of the people that you talk to are taking the steps that they need to take uh, to face their mental illness. And I definitely have in the past. But I, I want lister, listeners to know um, sometimes you take the right steps and you fall off again. And... Uh, that's okay. Um, it's part of it. Um, and if you are falling off of your mental health treatment, um, don't throw up your hands and be like, well, I'm just useless and I'm not going to get this done. You can sit up again and do the whole thing over because these times are going to happen. And how long did that take you to, to sort of take enough steps to get on a, a track that you've been able to stay with? Or have you? Uh, I I started therapy like seven, several years after college, and I just hit rock bottom in my life, <laughs> and uh, um, I finally just asked a good doctor for a good therapist, and I found someone right away, and I just was like, you know, I'm gonna make myself afford this. Um, I think the the life that I have now, which is Every day is not dangerous to me. And I, there's sort of two halves of my life. The half of my life where everything, every day was a danger to me. 
and now where everything is just shitty um uh came from starting therapy and sticking with it and going every uh week and really working uh with someone hard and showing up like uh you're like you're like you're meeting a personal trainer at the gym like all right let's do this today you know, we are going to lose 50 pounds of luggage. Right. You know? Well, so often with, with therapy, there's this perception that, oh, I just need to go and it will be done to me. Like a lot of people don't realize, no, right. I'm, I'm going to have to, you know, this is personal training. I'm going to have to lift those mm-hmm. weights when I go to this thing. Yeah. that's what, You can't make someone go to therapy and have it work. But when you're ready and you go and you're like dive in, you're like, what do you want to, do you want to talk about my mom? Like what's, uh, should I talk... Or should I talk about today and you'll ask about my mom? Like, how do you want to do this? Do you right. know what I mean? Like, right. I can do it both directions. Yeah, yeah. You get, you, well, you, it's a muscle that you build up. I kind of like that comparison of going to the gym. Yes, it's hard. Yes, you have to be dedicated. But if you stop going for a while, you can still go back. It'll still be good for you. You can still get in shape. I have to ask when you talk about hitting bottom, what did bottom look like? Girl... <laughs> the thing is, I got a, I had to have a medical history done recently um, for a job I was doing, and uh, I got a call from my doctor, and he was like, "Hey, you know, I'm being contacted for your medical history, and you've given me permission to share it, and I, I just am gathering all these things. We've had things sent from other offices, and I, there's some mistakes here because you were on." All of these ADHD medications, you were on all these sleeping medications, you were on all these mood stabilizers, you're on, and it's like, I know that you couldn't have been on all of those things because that would have been insane. So I just want you to help me figure out what it was really happening. And uh, I have this whole comedy set that I've taken around the world about this time of my life when everything was pills. But I sort of forgot that that was a real thing. It was just, it became stand-up to me. Um, but when the doctor called, this must have been like three or four months ago now, the doctor called and asked, he's like, now this would be crazy. I was like, you're right. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I got off the phone. Uh, I was like, Caitlin, you know that, that joke that I make about this and that? That's because that happened. And uh, I call it the, the Judy Garland diet. Uh-huh. Like... Uppers in the morning, downers at night, and dead by Tuesday. Like, for example, I would combine all these pills with um, alcohol, um, and I would get impatient with the trains, like on the C track, and i just walk between the stations while I was waiting for the train to come through. Through the tunnel? Just walk through the tunnels. And uh, because I was so out of it, um, I had no perception of what was dangerous and what was not i was swimming in the east river when it was hot i was so whacked out and so smoothed over by everything that i was rushing through my body that i was just doing really dangerous stuff all the time um all i remember is that i would just be at work and my boss would be talking to me at nine in the morning about the day and i just like there would be this like filmic cutaway to like an extreme close up of a pint of beer just sweating and i'd be like when this is over 
that will happen and all of this will be okay. Where were you working? I was working at a publishing house, uh, George Braziller Publishing, which was uh, some of the, the first art publishing house to publish Matisse, his work um, in the U.S., and they brought Sartre here, and um, it was a really incredible publishing house um, in its last days, and I was there just uh, doing it all on <laughs> non-Adderall. <laughs> Um, I treated whatever I thought was the problem then. I was too tired, so I would take what, that thing that made my heart go fast, and I couldn't go to sleep because my heart was going fast, so I'd take the thing that they ma- gave me to go to sleep, and then if uh, it wasn't time to go to sleep but my heart was going too fast, I'd t- drink alcohol. Um, and I was just trying to make everything okay. And I was gay but not really fully out... Um, I was completely alone in the city. I had made a few friends. By happy coincidence, they all died. Um, And I was just completely lost and suffering from depression. (laughs) Which, like, made all the uh, deaths and uh, disconnections feel worse. Um, One young woman, uh, she was doing the same thing I was doing. She was translating Ovid. And uh, she just decided that she couldn't do it without a lot of pills, and um, they took her out. She, she started overdosing and uh, went to a hospital where they gave her the wrong... Uh, they thought she had an infection, they gave her the wrong antibiotics that she was allergic to, and then she was dead. Oh, my God. Um, and a number of things like that where people just got canceled. Um, and those were the only people that I had in the city, so then it was just me. Um... And, uh, and a lot of pain. And, and my depression and a lot of pain. Pills were not being used in a healthy way. And then Hope arrived. And Hope, in this case, is named Bob the Drag Queen. That's in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, a way of demystifying it a little, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. This can be an awkward conversation. We realize this. But makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say. And stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. So Cracker grew up in Kenmore, Washington. I grew up 40 miles down the road in Federal Way, Washington. And you can read about me getting hit by a car and getting shot there. Shot with a BB gun, yes, but almost dying from it. That's all in my upcoming book called, conveniently, The Hilarious World of Depression. Easy to remember. It comes out in May, but it's available for pre-order now through hilariousworld.org. I'll also be doing an audio version. I'm going to make a bunch of hot tea when I have to sit down and read it all out loud. Back with Ms. Cracker. Here's Cracker at her caddiest. It's part of a competition on RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) 
Eureka O'Hara. I know you've probably seen Dumbo like a thousand times, but it doesn't matter how big you paint these wings. You are staying on the ground, bitch! <laughs> Aquaria, people don't appreciate how much money you have to spend on makeup when you're covering two faces. Oh, by the way, Ms. Cracker isn't hung up on pronouns. You can say he, she, whatever you like. If I am in a big fancy dress and big fancy hair and you use he on me, then uh, maybe that's my fault. <laughs> maybe I've, I've missed something. Um, but then if you're hearing me just over the uh, microphone, over the airwaves, um, I don't change my voice at all for drag. So, And I have this voice. So if you use the, the, the male pronoun, then I completely understand. <laughs> When last we left Max Heller, Ms. Cracker had not yet been born. He's using, he's drinking, the depression is spiraling. One of the huge pressures during the worst times of my depression was uh, fear of HIV because I was in New York City. I didn't know what was going on ever um, in, in, in my day. Like I would wake up weird places. And so I was really afraid of HIV because, you know, you should be conscious during sex, I heard. Um, <laughs> it's advised, and, uh, yes. Yeah, it was, it's a, people recommended it. Yeah. Now that I'm conscious during sex, I'm like, I kind of miss the not being around for it. But um, <laughs> it's like, I was always in the state of not knowing what the hell was going on. Um, so I was drinking a lot to soothe myself between tests and results. There's that anxiety again. Yeah, because it's like, I'm really anxious. So let me do something wild to distract myself from the anxiety. Wow, that was wild. That makes me really anxious. We're going to have to fix this by doing something much more wild. You know, and it just ramps up until you're like Chris Angeling your way <laughs> through life. Just being like, and now we'll make this entire bank account disappear. And it's gone. Um, so just aside with that, I really think that just people who happen to hear this, um, you know, HIV is a chronic uh, illness now. Um, and people need to hear that everywhere they go because I was a little kid from the country and nobody bothered to tell me um, that it's not this terrifying monster that needs to freeze you uh, in your tracks. Um, I say that because people are more likely to get tested and less likely to drink themselves into a stupor if they're just like, listen, it would be a really big challenge, but let's go look at it because it's not a death sentence. Cracker will sometimes mention her mother, Bob the Drag Queen. Now, Max Heller grew up in the Pacific Northwest. We've already heard about his mom. Bob the Drag Queen did not give birth to Ms. Cracker, but also kind of did. Bob, the drag queen, like, came out of this time when I was just like, oh, maybe if I hit on everyone uh, in the world um, and people like me, then I'll be happy. Um, I was going home and I was about to put my key in the front door of the building. It was snowing and I saw this guy walking with a big dilapidated bookshelf. And I was like, oh, I want to help this handsome guy. That way, once I get the bookshelf into his apartment, you know, maybe some romance... So we get this uh, bookshelf like three blocks away, up six flights of stairs into his apartment. By the t it's now ruined by the snow and the journey. Um, and I, we turn on the lights. I look around 
and cancel the romance because there's just wigs and gowns <laughs> all over the floor and everywhere. And I've already given this guy my number at this point, so backing out of the room slowly <laughs> doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> and uh, he keeps contacting me like, hey, no, you're freaked out with a drag, but you shouldn't be. You should try it. And I was like, I definitely will one day. Why were you freaked out by all the, the wigs and the gowns? Uh, hello, because he was a man and those are for ladies. Oh. I'm gay, but I'm not a freak. You know, I was looking at that stuff and I was like, this, these are women's clothing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, which is weird because I don't think uh, my I got that from my parents. Um, my dad grew up in New York, uh, saw Chelsea and all of its permutations. Um, and uh, I have gay family members. I have... Uh, trans family members and but somewhere i got that like listen it's okay to read virginia wolf and talk about the omega circle and bloomsbury and all of that gay stuff but we have to draw lines um <laughs> and so then what what started to turn it around for you what what you, sounds like you got interested at some point for those of you who don't know bob he's very persistent and when he thinks he's right um Bob, by the way, is a drag queen you can feel comfortable calling he, no matter how he's dressed, because come on. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's very persistent. When he has his mind on something, he won't let it go. So it was six months. Every Saturday he did an event um, in Times Square, and every Saturday he would ask if I wanted to come down. So finally, just for the sake of my own sanity, um, I was like, okay, fine, I'll, I will try drag. And he put my back to the mirror... And painted my face and put a wig on me and then turned me around to the mirror. And I was like, this is the thing. For the first time in my life, I can look in the mirror and I see something beautiful. And I want this to go on forever. And I think that for me, drag gave me the ability to look in the mirror because, you know, with my issues with depression and self-esteem, I had trained myself to shower and wash my face and wash my hands in the dark so I didn't have to see mirrors. Um, I got matte tea kettles because I caught my reflection in a tea kettle once and it ruined my day. I was unable to look up when I walked down the street because I, if I saw myself in a shop window, I was so ashamed of how I looked. And... When Bob turned me around in the chair and I could look myself directly in the eyes in the mirror, it was like uh, standing up after being on a seven-hour road trip. You're just like, this hurts, but I'm so glad not to be stuck where I was anymore, if that makes sense. And so the instinct that you would normalize to not see yourself or to, yeah. you know, to, to avoid seeing yourself because you had a belief that you're unacceptable that yeah. just went away with that one turn towards the mirror. Yeah, I think it did. As long as I was in drag, I could, I never allowed any pictures of myself. Then when I went to Times Square that day with Bob, we did a demonstration for, uh, advocating for marriage equality. Um, I was taking pictures with people and it was just that. And if you don't believe that drag can do that in a second, you know, just come. I'll put someone in drag in front of you and you watch them become a new person. 
this must be why you said you're never out of drag. Oh, I am fully in drag all the time. When we're on tours with the other girls, I am up while the bus is still moving to the next town, painting my face. And then Caitlin and I are out in the world, just like greeting people and they're happy to see me. And I take a photograph of the landmark and then, you know, it's wonderful. Um, and it trickles down. Once you uh, relax your muscles that much, uh, it's hard to tense up again. And when I'm out of dragon as a boy now, I'm accustomed to looking myself in my brown eyes. It's easier now. You can look at yourself as Maxwell Heller and, and like what yeah. you see. I'm like, look, it's the same person. Mm. Just shorter hair. You know? <laughs> it's like easing in. It's like easing into looking at yourself and then you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, when you look at yourself as a boy, do you say, oh, that's what Ms. Cracker would look like as a boy? Like, is, is yeah. it a different version of Ms. Cracker or is it that's the real me? Uh, no, I just, I'm like, here I am, you know, I don't think that somebody else or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, here I am now, uh, soon makeup. Then I'll look like that. That's why Miss Miss Cracker isn't a character. She's just me as I behave when I'm in drag. Um, and the way that is, is much happier and, um, confident. I can, uh, I can parallel park in drag. I can't. (laughs) Parallel park out of drag. Because when I'm out of drag, I'm like, ah, Max has always been so bad at math and spatial reasoning. I don't think I could do this. And everyone's watching the people behind me. They want me to go faster. But I'm in drag. I'm like, drag queen parking, everyone. <laughs> Aren't you glad you're behind this shit? Because this is going to be great. And then you're just like, you're back into the space. And you're like, bam, I knew I could. I have wonderful people uh, working with me on this show who've brought me up to speed on on drag as best they could. And I feel like I'm making a lot of progress. But um, what about the issue of like, if somebody says, well, but who are you really? Are you, you know, who's the real you? Is it Ms. Cracker or is it uh, the the guy that then became Ms. Cracker? Uh, that's, I mean, that's what people always ask me. People that are like very into drag, people that are deep in the drag community or leaders in the drag community, they're like, who's the real blah, 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 blah. I'm like, if we were interested in real, we would not be here together dressed like this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know why. So it's not just you being inexperienced. It's a question that people really want to know. And uh, I think it's a philosophy. I think a lot of people are like, I'm going to decide who I am. And then I'm going to behave like that person that I imagined. And that's going to be called me and my character and my brand. I just do it backwards. At the end of the day, I look back and I'm like, what's all the stuff that I did today? Uh, that must be me. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I do a bunch of stuff. And at the end, I'm like, yeah, I'm all that stuff. Which is why I try not to do really shitty things because I don't want to go to the end. I, at the end of the day, I don't want to look back and be like, well, that thing is part of who I am now. For most people, the idea of who you are is a pretty simple one. You were given a name, you were given some circumstances, and you go live a life. Cracker said to herself, it doesn't have to be that way. I can choose my identity, embrace the parts of me that are joyful and positive and healthy and beautiful. So even if you don't want to do that through drag, you can still do that. It's on the table. How long have you been doing this? How long have you been doing Ten drag? years. Ten years. And when did you get involved with uh, RuPaul, and how did that come about? 
that was two years ago. I'm looking at Caitlin <laughs> like it was because I've been like all I've been to 15 nations uh, around the world since then, and that doesn't help with time uh, <laughs> with understanding time. Um, so yeah, it's been two years. I never was uh, interested in auditioning for Drag Race because I was like, I'm an in-person kind of uh, drag queen. I like to perform for people that are in the room because uh, I came out of like a Brechtian, Grotowskian theater background. Um, and uh, Caitlin came along and she was like, great, that's wonderful. If you do this show, you can do exactly what you want everywhere on a different level. And I was like, all right, I'm listening. <laughs> so she shot and edited my audition tape. I got on the show and she was not wrong. <laughs> not wrong. What do you think the cultural impact of, of drag race has been like for the, for the Queens and for the rest of us? Paris is burning is a film that showed the world, introduced the world to ballroom culture and um, that kind of dance and that kind of spirit and that kind of way of speaking to each other um, just changed the way people everywhere talk and act and think about dance and socializing and everything. And I think that uh, Drag Race has brought um, drag into the world in the same way, where people are like, girl, at a straight bar, not even, some of them not even knowing where it's coming from uh -huh. but it's sort of like it's like a what do you call it when the the tide comes up the i don't know it's like a i guess it's called a groundswell like it just like people are neck deep in drag without even knowing it because it's been like the water level has been rising um since drag race came on um it's infused the world with queerness which is great I think. Well, it seems like it's it's shown the the queerness that has guided so much of the culture already. You know, it's it's just mm -hmm. made it more mm -hmm. visible. Yeah, that's very true. And those people were behind the scenes uh, moving culture for a long time, and their the language and the way of doing makeup and hair uh, has uh, affected the uh, our visual culture and and America and the way we talk to each other for a long time. Now we're just seeing the people that came up with the ideas. Um, themselves how do you feel about drag i haven't seen a lot of the show i know of the okay. show right um my uh, my ex-girlfriend loved it and was always on the back oh so you're a heterosexual I, oh yeah I'm, don't worry about I, it this is an accepting environment <laughs> um i accept your lifestyle do you love drag oh, do you yeah, want to find out more about it oh yeah well this that's that's why i'm so excited because okay. you're gonna you're gonna teach me everything I okay assume, right? all right um yeah. are you familiar with tucking I mean, I, I think uh, the word is sort of... Yeah. I, I, think, I, I think I get it, yeah. Well, just to put it in the, in the baldest terms, so what I do is I just take duct tape and I pull everything oh, wow. back between my legs so that I look like a lady. Okay. I feel like I have a bigger challenge than everyone else. Chester looks like he should not do drag. Chester is straight, he has a beard, and on top of it, he seems super shy. For me, I'm a, a lady that likes big hair and making jokes, but most of all, I like making people happy with drag. But I think if there's anyone that can be an ambassador for what makes drag wonderful, it's me. 
what do you know now about mental health that you wish you knew a long time ago? Oh. Um, well, I lost um, my godmother to suicide uh, after she struggled her entire life, really battling therapy, medications, this psychiatrist, that psychiatrist, this situation, that one, all the stuff, the food, the the self-help books and everything, and she lost. And uh, when I was young, I definitely was like, okay, this is something you lose to immediately. And it's just a counting down. And so I was like, I will lose to depression. That's just all, that's it. I'm going to lose because everyone... It's like going back in my family, they would die of stomach cancer from drinking or lung cancer from smoking and all the other little fringe things that come with uh, mental illness that take us down. I was like, bye. Here's the countdown. Now, I realize the same thing I realize uh, and we should all realize about HIV is that you you live and you don't think about the countdown and you don't think about how every, anyone else is doing on it or how you're doing on it right now. Uh, you do the stuff you need to do and you don't think about, oh, it's over. It's the countdown. I wish I had known that. I wish that it, I had known that what I have, my mental illness is not a death sentence because um, it would have changed the way I would have tried more to help myself. Because you'd see more hope. You'd see help. Yeah, I didn't see the point. I was like, well, I'm going to die anyway. Why delay it expensively? Um, I would have been like, all right, let's 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 face this thing. Let's maybe not watch this avocado sprout for quite so long. Right. Yeah. And which is exactly what I'm going to do, like, you know, soon. Again, when I call my therapist back. I'm going to be right back on it. On our next episode, Angelina Spicer had no hesitation when her therapist suggested she check into a psychiatric hospital for postpartum depression. I don't care how I'm going to pay for it, how I'm going to get there. Like, I will walk. I will walk. I will get one of those little scooters. I'll get a scooter, a rental bike on the street. I got to go. There's a place to go? Why didn't you say anything sooner? I love the visual of somebody on one of those little share scooters puttering yes. through the street on the way yes. to a mental hospital. Hell yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. I even It didn't have to be motorized. I would scoot my way. I'd Give me a skateboard, honey. Hell yeah. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Our digital producer is Christina Lopez. Phyllis Fletcher is our editor. Arnold Schwarzenegger starred in Predator. Our intern is Ariana Wilson. Recording engineers for this episode, Veronica Rodriguez and Robin Edgar at Marketplace in New York. Technical director, Cameron Wiley. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. 
The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation like that can be awkward, but Make It OK has tips on what to say and not to say. It has stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter and come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening there with your fellow Thwadballs. New shows being formed over there. It's a good place to hang out. I'm John Moe. Bye now. This great big smile is just a show. What if I was to tell you this is just grease paint? Say I'm a hopeless case Say it ain't so Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know